Today on Girls on Film, it's a rags-to-riches story. No, don't want to get all Horatio Alger on you. It is a nice success story in the entertainment biz, the result of talent and hard work, which is how it always is. The girls talk to editor Craig Tallis, make that assistant editor Local 700 in Los Angeles, and that tells you a lot. We've got a great conversation about the road to success in the entertainment industry, working on a hit show in Hollywood. Girls on Film is coming at you right now. Good afternoon. Good morning, whatever. It doesn't really matter when you're listening to this. This is Port Wilson. I am uh, with Girls on Film. I am an honorary girl. One day, hope to be a real girl, um, but who doesn't? I'm used to hearing Sarah Smith do the intros. My voice is not quite as dulcet as hers, but her dad was an old radio guy who could do the radio voice, and I can't do it. Um, but he was also voiced for NFL films, which is pretty cool. Welcome, Sarah. Hello. Morning, or afternoon. Wow, could you expound on that a little bit? Hello. No, hello, hello. I, can you hear me? <laughs> can you yes, hear me? I can hear you. I can hear you just fine. Thanks for letting me do the intro. I'm here. Also, also here is Teresa Roth, exceptional producer here in Atlanta, many years uh, at WSB, the number one ABC affiliate in the country. Welcome, Teresa. Hey. Good morning. Good afternoon, and uh, I'm very excited about talking with our guest today. And who's dribbling marbles? No one. I hear. I hear mean. something that rolling around on Let the table. Go. Let it go. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saving it for the air, Sarah. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> That's an inside joke. Uh, well, we okay, well, we have one. I've known you forever, and we never had an inside joke. Because everything's just up front with us. Yes. Um, <laughs> as a, well, before Craig falls asleep, as a producer of Girls on Film, occasionally these guys let me talk on the show, and I bring cool guests. And today I'm happy to introduce my friend Craig Tallis. And you're wondering what's cool about him, other than, you know, being my friend. Um, but seriously, for all of you trying to live the entertainment dream out there in whatever capacity, it can be done. And uh, Craig's a good example. He was an intern at a production company I worked at. He was going to school at a college here in Atlanta. And he was, uh, he could always write code. The guy's an IT whiz, but he wanted to edit. Um, and let's just flash forward past that. Now he is an assistant editor uh, on the hit ABC show, The Good Doctor, in L.A. So we'll fill in the in-between as we go along, which is not bad for a small-town Aussie boy now living in L.A. Hey, Craig, welcome to Girls on Film. Hey, Port. Good morning. Uh, glad to be on. Well, we're glad to have you. Um, so just as we get, get started here, let's, uh, let's just back up a little before we jump into the big stuff and tell us a little bit about getting started in the business. I mean, did you always want to be an editor or were you were an IT guy and you obviously still are a good IT guy? Yeah, I was an IT guy at like the worst possible point to be an IT guy in the last 30 years. <laughs> right at the, like I got out of school right into the middle of a big uh, industry crash and uh, had to rethink that. And uh, I got thinking about not editing specifically, but getting into some kind of, of production 
uh, or post-production, partly because it, it seemed to tie together a lot of things that I was interested in, like uh, right. music and photography and, and storytelling. But also it was, you know, if it was unfortunate timing in terms of IT industry dumping out, it was actually good timing in terms of that technology was really making inroads into entertainment. Right. And that was uh, that was a, a bridge for me to be able to take those tech skills and use them in the, the in the company that we worked at. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we had some good editors there and you little by little started editing. But uh, whatever, what got you finally hooked on the whole editing thing? Editing is really where everything comes together and you're dealing with every aspect and every element of what makes motion pictures all comes together in editing. So you're dealing with pictures, you're dealing with sound, you're dealing with music, you're dealing with performances. You have a, a, a lot of uh, in, involvement in how those things work together and are, and are shaped to, uh, to tell a story. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So you moved here, you moved to actually move from Australia to England first and then to Atlanta. Was, did you not? That's, that's correct. Yeah. I, uh, I managed to not have IT work out in both uh, Australia and England. And it was, uh, <laughs> when, I, when I was in England, I, I went back to, uh, to college to do production. Third continent is the charm, dude. So, you know. Yeah, it is. Third time, well, lucky, right? We were so glad to have you at uh, Image Master, was the name of the production company, and we did some fun things together. I mean, I see some of them still listed on your on your resume, but you know, um, as opposed to talking about some of those, I know what's happened to you in the last five years. You've been in LA now. Is that how long it is? Yeah, it's five. Actually, yeah, I think like Memorial Day was the day that it, uh, that I arrived here, so it's, it's right on five years. Wow, you think I was keeping track or something? Um, <laughs> so laughing. tell me what, what precipitated you're an editor here you're, you're you're doing pretty well i mean freelancing is rough what precipitated the move to la so many people have made uh the trek to la with varying degrees of success how intimidating was that i think a part of it was that i really didn't know what i was getting into i've heard so that song before <laughs> i probably wasn't as intimidated as i should have been cool but i had I had kind of things line up for me where I was working. Uh, I was working as an assistant editor at uh, Tyler Perry Studios. Right. And uh, they brought in a lot of editors, not all their editors, but a lot of editors from L.A. to work on both the dramas and the comedies. Of course. So I made quite a number of L.A. contacts from working that job. and. I got to a point where I, if I had some of these elements falling into place and if I didn't pull the trigger, then I don't think I was going to do it at all. Right. Right. Well, I, I do remember one story when you were still working here, you were uh, an added assist on we are Marshall with Matthew McConaughey. Oh no, it's technically, they came up with like some really funny uh, description of what I was because it wasn't a union position, so it had oh. to be described in a certain way. It was like uh, editorial staff assistant or something like that. I, but what I really liked about it because people are so impressed by movies, and you know, of course, obviously, you know, the business is booming here in Atlanta. But you said they were shooting a football scene, and uh, you know, when we went out on shoots, you, me, and and Dan and Dawson and whoever, we'd stand around and decide camera angles and what we we're going to do and what shots we we're going to get. 
And he said they're shooting a big scene, boom, six, seven cameras, football sequence, and McConaughey and the director, McGee, standing around, just like us, deciding where camera angles are going to be, only just for a lot more money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's very similar. And I actually, I mean, I learned a lot from, from the projects that, that we worked on, particularly because when we were doing documentary, we're going into an environment that we don't control and that we've maybe seen for the first time when we walk in that morning. Right. And you're having to do that whole process very much on the fly where you're, you are, you know, looking around and figuring out your camera angles. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it was interesting to see, like, those guys are basically doing the same thing, except there's like 120 people waiting on them to make their decision. <laughs> A little bit more money involved. Yeah. Well, you know, I know. So let's let's go ahead and skip out to L.A. Um, and let these other guys get involved a little bit once we get to the show. What was your first project when you got out to L.A.? I, I think the very first thing I did was like a two-week fill-in thing on a reality show. Oh, really? It was some kind of a – it was like a promo package that they, that they needed somebody to cut. And because their, their staff editors were all working on their regular shows – uh, I got to cut the, a promo package for them. What's the first big project? What's the first film you, you edited out there or show? Um, it's funny. It all, it all becomes a blur. I, I think the <laughs> right. what was actually the first thing? I think it was um, a, uh, a basketball comedy that was being shot in Las Vegas. Gosh, where's my resume? You have to read, have to read can it. find it. <laughs> well, I've been looking at your IMDb page, and um, it seems like you've worked in so many different departments. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, it's actually, it's kind of unusual, you know, when I talk to people in L.A. at least, because for most of the people in L.A., they got into something when they started out, and they sort of pursued one one aspect. And I think that was a, a great opportunity working in Atlanta was that I got to do a lot of different things that started with the company that Port and I worked at because we were a small team. We would, uh, you know, you're sending like three or four people out and everybody helps out with all the different uh, aspects of it. So that started out as a great learning opportunity. And then I just had the chance to do a lot of different things. I had a chance to work camera. I had a chance to be a sound recordist. I think it's, it's definitely, it's a big uh, learning experience. And I think it all, everything informs everything else because then you understand what all of these other people's jobs are and what these roles are and how like everything is important rather than just being focused on, on one thing. It really helps you become a better editor, too, when you understand all that. It does. It, it does. And I, and I think it helps you. It helps you understand what's possible. And, and you know what? The more the crew people are going through in, in doing uh, what they're bringing to it and doing their jobs well. And you get something, an idea of like what's what's good about uh, this piece of camera work or what's good about this piece of sound recording. And it, I think it does as an editor, it helps you find like the best elements and, and gives you more of an appreciation for the, the material you're working with. One of the questions I always have and always imagine, uh, having dealt scripted and unscripted, but one of the biggest frustrations when we get into post um, 
for both a producer and an editor is not having the right material, not having the right angles, not having the right shots. And when something in Hollywood that is generally storyboarded and scripted to within an inch of its life, does that still happen? Yes, um, strangely enough. <laughs> and that's interesting because I started out in, you know, this, working with you and in the, the same sort of material where we were, you know, pretty much coming up with things on the fly. Right. And so it's interesting to see that even when people have like weeks to plan something out and, you know, you, you have a, a big crew, you have a lot of time to plan, you're on a set or, or, or a location where you're in control of everything. And it, it's basically that there's never enough time for what you really want to do. Yeah. And you're always having to manage uh, priorities. You're having to think ahead. So it's easy to skip something. Right. Uh, and, you know, you're making you, you never get everything that you want. Uh, you're, you're always having to make compromises and trade offs. And uh, particularly in television where uh, like the, the good doctor shoots about, uh, you know, it's it's a 42 minute show. Right. They'll film that in nine days. And that's that ends up being a fairly aggressive schedule to to shoot uh, enough material on that level. Uh, to, to shoot an hour show in nine days. And usually, you know, usually there's a way to make it work. You may, Maybe you didn't get exactly the shot you wanted, but uh, there's some way of making it work. And that's, that's certainly a big part of what we're doing in, in editing is, like, nobody should ever know that you didn't get the shot that you wanted. Exactly. Uh, we've had plenty of those oh shit moments where you realize continuity has gone out the window. I imagine on a higher level, that's a bigger oh shit moment. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> we haven't had too many, too many of those because you, you typically you've got enough coverage that you can get around it somehow. Or, you know, the thing that saves you now is visual effects. Yeah. And we certainly do that a lot. I don't think, I mean, The Good Doctor is actually very well produced and a very well shot and a very well directed and a very well written show. It's like there's, Everything is done well on that show, so we don't often get problems. Uh, but there'll occasionally be a little thing, and 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 that'll go to visual effects, and you know nobody ever knows. Sure. What kind of visual effects would you use for the Good Doctor? There's uh, a lot of the things in, uh, the 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 main ones, which are actually kind of dull, are a lot of the things that are in the monitors are added in afterwards for continuity reasons. Uh, because it's too complicated to have somebody playback video that's going to match the action of, of what the actors are doing. So those tend to be matched up in visual effects. Uh, sometimes there's continuity issues where we'll do split screens in, in order to correct timing or something was out of place. Um there's a, some of the medical is, is enhanced a little bit because they actually do most of the medical stuff is actually very, very well-made prosthetics. And it's actually something you know physical that looked like that on the set and, and they'll enhance things a little bit or, or fix them a little bit in visual effects, but it's not a terribly visual effects heavy show. Well, before you, uh, just quickly, not to backtrack any, because I want to talk more about The Good Doctor, but 
You work here, and we've being in Atlanta. Tyler Perry's kind of a local treasure. Um, I keep hearing varying things. What's it like to work over at Tyler Perry Studios? Yeah, Hollywood magic creates some spectacular effects in movies, but you know they're not real. Potentially, the biggest Hollywood effect is the super at the start of a film that reads, based on a true story. What's the real deal behind some of film's biggest true-life hits? Did it really go down that way? Now, from Audio Boom, there's a brand new podcast, Truth vs. Hollywood. Film lovers David Chen and Joanna Robinson pull back the curtain on well-known films to bring you the truth. The TVH cast will have interviews with experts, witnesses, and folks involved at the time. Get the skinny on movies like The Social Network, Munich, American Gangster, and more. Truth vs. Hollywood premiered Friday, June 12th, with new episodes every week on your favorite app. Right now, just for Girls on Film listeners, and we're big fans of this cast, we're offering an exclusive first listen. David and Joanna break down Goodfellas, the amazing cast versus the real-life guys who lived it. While you're listening, search and subscribe to Truth vs. Hollywood in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, anywhere you love to dig your podcasts. Welcome to Truth vs. Hollywood. I'm David Chen. And I'm Joanna Robinson. Truth vs. Hollywood is a look at films that are based on a true story. But we don't just talk about the film, we also talk about that true story. On this podcast, we'll touch on what really happened, how that differs from the film, and why. And we're not just talking heads, we'll hear about the true story through interviews from experts, witnesses, and people who were involved in it. It's both the real facts and the real facts. R-E-E-L facts. What do you think of that, Joanna? I loved it. Today we're t- <laughs> today we're talking about Martin Scorsese's classic film Goodfellas. Goodfellas is based on the book Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi, which in turn is based on the life of mobster Henry Hill. Hill was actually alive when the film came out and was very pleased with this great film based on him. And as we'll talk about later, it definitely had an effect on his life. Pileggi worked with Scorsese to write the screenplay, and the film was a complete hit. Nominated for six Academy Awards and won one, Joe Pesci, for Supporting Actor. It's considered one of the best gangster movies of all times. AFI put it on their list of 100 Years, 100 Movies. And the Library of Congress decided that it was culturally important and added it to its preservation archives. All right, well, let's get to the movie itself. It stars Ray Liotta as Henry Hill, Robert De Niro as Jimmy the Gent Conway, who is based on Jimmy the Gent Burke, Joe Pesci as Tommy DeVito, based on Tommy DeSimone, Paul Sorvino as Paul Cicero, based on Paul Vario, and Lorraine Bracco as Henry's wife, Karen Hill. Many real-life figures that this movie was based off of, and uh, apparently Henry Hill ended up getting paid $580,000 because uh, of the use of his story in this movie, which is a lot of money to pay to a mobster who's done very horrible things. You know, in watching this movie again, Joanna Robinson, one of the things that uh, I kind of realized, you know, or reflected on is the fact that we've, in the last few decades, seen so many movies about bad men doing bad things and that this movie is kind of one of the prototypical examples of how they can be glorified and elevated. And this this kind of movie makes that lifestyle look really glamorous, uh, while at the same time depicting some of the negative consequences of that lifestyle. But at the same time, it does rub me the wrong way that like the people who are involved often are rewarded. We also saw this with Martin Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. A similar dynamic there. Uh, so I'm kind of curious, like, 
as you're reflecting on your overall experience of watching the movie, and now that we know a little bit more about what happened uh, with the real life characters, and we're going to talk about it during the course of this podcast, like, uh, how did it strike you that this is based off of a real person? I think Scorsese couldn't have picked a better real life subject to to glom onto here than Henry Hill, because though he is a gangster and he's fully involved in this gangster life, he is. Uh, the likability of this character, which is really what Scorsese was going for. Um, I've seen interviews where he talked about the 1932 Scarface, which was the first time he ever saw gangsters depicted as really likable. And you have Henry Hill, and he does terrible things, but he's a gangster who is a little squeamish. We see this throughout the film, and it's corroborated by, you know, true story of his life. He was violent. He did crimes, but he wasn't a, a mass murderer. And, um, you know, the, the charisma of him, I think, uh, is really important. Yeah, he, he wasn't one of the most vicious people in the story. Uh, yeah. And so I, I think you're making a good point that, like, if you're going to choose an entryway into this world, Henry Hill is probably the ideal candidate in this case. So... Uh, well, the film opens with three men driving in a car having a seemingly normal evening. It's then revealed that there is a captive in the trunk, and uh, then they shortly after execute him. We immediately get Henry's voiceover with the iconic line, As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. It's one of the most memorable openings in all of cinema history. Joanna Robinson, after nearly three decades, how effective did you find this opening? Well, it's funny, you know, I did not see, I was eight years old <laughs> when uh, Goodfellas came out, or maybe nine. Uh, so I did not see it in theaters, and I didn't see it until later in life. And uh, But by then it had already seeped into the culture because it was so iconic. You know, there's like the Animaniacs, Good Feathers, Pigeon parody, and like all sorts of stuff. So I was aware <laughs> of the beats of it, even though your, your I had Your first seen exposure it. to Goodfellas was Animaniacs, is what you're saying, right? A, a thousand percent, absolutely. Um, <laughs> But, you know, so by the time I had seen it, I had also seen so many things that had imitated it. And this is true of like so many of our great films. Like by the time you get around to watching it, maybe you've seen a bunch of people knock it off. And so you're like, well, how groundbreaking is this really? And um, this movie is incredibly groundbreaking. And what's funny is this um, this opening is so famous to the point of almost parody, like you get this moment where he goes as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. And it reminds me of that like record scratch. Yeah, it's me. <laughs> I bet you're wondering <laughs> how I got here, you know, sort of thing that we right. talk about. Um, you know, and we've seen it, you know, in a more serious fashion, we've seen this sort of thing replicated. I'm thinking of like the the premiere of Breaking Bad. You meet this person in the middle of a crime and then you find out how they got there. You know, so knowing that, it's not as fresh and innovative as it might have been if I had seen it in the theaters in 1990, but it's still, you can sense the the iconic status of it. What do you think of it, Dave? It's, it's kind of hard to put yourself into the position of the first time you saw the movie because I, like, I, I saw this movie, you know, decades ago. And I, I do think back then, it wasn't clear to me like what was actually going on in the car right from the opening shot. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it starts like so seemingly normal, these dudes just hanging out. And then all of a sudden you, you realize like something horrifying is happening. And I like that contrast. Like now, like because the scene is so iconic uh, and everyone knows what happens, it's tough to remember that like there was a time in history when like many people didn't know that that was about to happen. But uh, I can kind of imagine if I could rewind my life, you know, several decades and rewatch this again, like that would be super effective and quite a shock when they open up the trunk on uh, Billy Bats. So uh, anyway, 
love the opening. It, it still is great. And I, I, yeah, the freeze frame, you're right. Many things have parodied it. Many things have uh, been derived from it. But it is still uh, a legendary moment in uh, in this movie and in all the cinema. And I, I, I quite loved it. So after this scene, we cut to Henry Hill's life as a child. It's a very modest upbringing. And one of the things I like about this movie is, you know, we often see mob movies and the mob characters are already fully formed, right? But Goodfellas uh, invites you into the world of a child who is viewing the mob from the outside and why they might find the mafia to be so intoxicating. What did you think of these early scenes with Henry Hill in childhood? I love this opening. You know, we cut to the eyeball, right, directly on his eyeball, and then we see what he's seeing out the window. And um, I didn't take many film studies classes, but I did take one where we we learned about Martin Scorsese's upbringing, and I know that he had really serious asthma, and that meant that he was he like he couldn't go out and play. It's why he went to go see movies a lot. He couldn't like go play in the streets with friends, and he was also stuck at home a lot. And he's he's written and talked a lot about how he was sort of like a shut in as a kid and used to watch the cinema of the streets like from his window and so he's put himself like his own childhood basically in this Henry Hill opening and I think that's that's fascinating and telling that he like he wants us there with Henry um, but then he like because he's also put himself there you know what I mean I just think that's it's yeah. a really interesting choice we should also say that uh, the actor who plays young Henry Hill, Christopher Sarone, uh, bears an uncanny resemblance to Ray Liotta. I thought they did a, did a great job casting young Henry Hill. Um, so You know how like sometimes you don't understand what's unique about someone's face until you've seen uh, them try to cast a younger version of them? Yes. And you're like, oh, yes. there's something with the eyes. It's, it's really amazing, the kid they found there. Yeah, it's a great indeed, job. Indeed, indeed. Well, Daniel Simone, who wrote the book Lufthansa Heist, which is about Henry Hill's most lucrative robbery, gives us some more insight into Henry's background and upbringing. His father was a, an electrician who worked for wages. Uh, the family was rather large. The, uh, uh, their apartment was cramped. Uh, it was not the type of situation where every sibling had uh, his or her own uh, room, for example. They shared beds. They shared uh, everything. He happened to have been reared in a neighborhood infested with uh, mafia gangsters. In fact, right across the street from his home was a taxicab stand opera- owned and operated by Paul Vario and his brothers. So Henry literally walks into the taxi stand and he starts working for Vario or in the film Cicero, who's played by Paul Servino. Early on, we meet Robert De Niro's character, Jimmy Conway. He's made out to be an extremely appealing and charismatic figure in the film. I mean, it is a young Robert De Niro after all. He looks awesome. He looks like magnetic, luminous. Uh, And young Henry really takes a shine to him and aspires to be that exact type of gangster, living the high life, having connections. Uh, And Daniel Simone says the real-life Jimmy was the same way. Uh, He was prosperous. He... um uh, he was respected by the uh, family bosses, particularly Paul Vario. In fact, many of the uh, mafia families at times would compete for his association because he was such a, uh, a reliable uh, earner uh, of, you know, through schemes and manipulations. And Henry Hill loved all those characteristics about Jimmy Burke. He loved the fact that Jimmy Burke would be respected wherever he went, into a restaurant, into a nightclub. 
chairs would pull out immediately. Jimmy Burke did not need reservations to uh, book a, the best table in a uh, restaurant. And these were all the uh, fascinating, intoxicating uh, traits that Jimmy Burke uh, wielded and were all attractive to Henry Hill. Something I really love about what this film does is it um, it takes the American dream, the you know the idea we have of wealth and success, and puts it in this world of the mafia. And um, I, I just like what that says about the American dream to begin with. It really exposes sort of some of the the violence and the brutality that we sometimes like to gloss over when we think of the sort of the most picturesque version of the American dream. Well, before you, uh, just quickly, not to backtrack any, because I want to talk more about The Good Doctor, but you work here, and we've, being in Atlanta, Tyler Perry's kind of a local treasure. Um, and I keep hearing varying things. What's it like to work over at Tyler Perry Studios? It's, uh, it's an interesting place. I mean, I haven't worked at the, uh, <laughs> I haven't worked at the new studios. I worked at the, the, uh, the previous ones. Right. But it's, it's interesting because you're working, essentially you're working for a celebrity. So that plays into uh, a, a lot into the way that the studio runs because Tyler Perry is such a, a, a center of attention for people and he's under constant scrutiny and people are trying to get in, in touch with him all the time. And, uh, you know, he's such a popular figure that the the way that the studio runs necessarily revolves around that so it's a it's a different dynamic than if you were just working for uh you know a producer that nobody's ever heard of craig this this is sarah i'm going to jump in because no one will let me (laughs) okay (laughs) sorry port craig is it a little cult of personality over there well i think that's the you know it's the nature of the thing and uh Tyler Perry is so he's so multi-talented that he's he's involved in everything. He writes, he directs, he's producing the shows. You necessarily uh you're necessarily dealing with an element of that and right. It's it's so tied into uh you know one of one of his enormous skills is that he he has this uh, phenomenal audience loyalty. Uh, and people like really, really love him and his work. It necessarily revolves around that. It's it's really such a huge part of his business model. I have one more question, if I could. This is this is something that I think is is hard, and I'd love to hear your point of view, Craig. As a storyteller, as an editor, you're telling stories. Do you ever find it difficult to share with? other editors or other contributors to the story when you see something when you see the story is it difficult to collaborate sometimes it can be and it's the it, it's very much about the relationship that you have with a director or producer or you know whoever, whoever else has creative input uh, and, and a lot of that is just sort of on a personal level or, or how you interact. But yeah, certainly there can be a lot of friction. As an editor, really, you know that you're going you're going to concede eventually. <laughs> uh, your your only recourse is to quit. 
or decide that you don't want your name on something if you think it's really terrible. But right. most people are not like that. And I, I think uh, certainly more experienced people understand that you're there to have their back. The, the editor, if you're a director or a producer, you, your editor is really one of your first audience members. And it's somebody who has, uh, you know, an outside perspective on your work and hopefully can make a contribution to uh, helping you understand how an audience is going to react to your work. Gotcha. Um, I have one more question for you. Well, I have like 20, but I'll only ask one more. Um, Are you always thinking about editing when you are watching things on TV or movies? Yeah, it drives my wife crazy. Okay. I I have to shut up. Um, It really depends on what it is. I I think if you start, I'll start noticing things mainly if they're bad. So hopefully that doesn't happen. And sometimes if something is, is like particularly good, Hopefully you get drawn into the story and you're not picking apart or noticing technical issues so much, but there's certainly there's, there's things where uh, if there's something particularly bad or particularly impressive, certainly notice that. What's one of your favorite things that you found in your words, particularly impressive? That's tricky. A a lot of impressive editing is actually invisible. And it's about this sort of illusion that we're watching something that as though it actually happened in one uh, like in one slice of reality, whereas it's probably like 24 different takes cut together. So a lot of good editing is about not being seen. Obvious things like fast paced montages, which are uh, or simultaneous action where two things are happening at the same time, which obviously you can't look at two things happening at the same time. So there's a there's a skill to presenting that. Did you see 1917? I haven't. I, I haven't. I, um, oh, okay. We're gonna have to have you back. You're gonna have to watch that, and then we'll have to do a whole show. Absolutely, I would love to get your input on that. Totally. It's funny because in my in my writing class, one of the things when I was talk about editing uh, and the skill involved, I'd say watch a show and just start off counting the edits. And if after a minute or two, you're still counting the edits, it's not edited very well. You get drawn into the story and suddenly you're swept up in it. Right. Because when I ask them, I say, what is, who writes a story? And they're like, well, you know, the guy who writes it. I said, well, what about the director? What about the editor? What about the shooter? What if he comes back with not enough footage? Everybody writes the story. Yeah. And I don't think people understand that really. I think editor, you know. What's, a, what's an editor do? You're more than slapping pictures together. Do you get any editorial, as they say? oversight or do you just follow what someone's sitting behind you telling you to do it depends on who you're working for sure i think the basic answer to that is there are too many decisions to make to have somebody sit behind you and tell you everything that you should do if you attempt to do that it'll it'll take you way too long to actually edit something so it depends on who you're working for but like the most gratifying jobs are the ones in which you have uh you're working with somebody who trusts you and you have some input into this works this doesn't work maybe we could try something different sure it's about figuring out what works and and that's like to your point about the thing sort of being written and rewritten 
what you're looking for in the end is is like well, what works the best what's what's the best right. story that we can make out of what we have i think editors generally have to be brave because you know if you're if you're someone who's been out in the field doing the shoot a lot of times you want to see the all that work come on the screen but an editor is really one of the most important storytellers because sometimes they like you know have to say you know this scene really is not serving the purpose right you know because they're the one that is you know dispassionate about the shooting yes yes and and that's um yeah speaking to purpose is is very uh is very important because you know when you when you're shooting something you put so much into it and you there's so many things that are happening and there's so many elements and so much nuance and then when you go to edit that you really have to be cognizant of like what what is this scene supposed to be about who is it about what what is the what's the main story point that that changes for them over the course of the scene and there might be you know six other great things that happened on the set but maybe they don't relate to the 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 story point that we're trying to get out of the scene. Exactly. One quick thing. Talk about the good doctor for a second. From going for working with us and even fairly big productions for Georgia, um, being on your first movie set, how intimidating is it to make that suddenly now you're on when the good doctor started? Well, it was a, well, a heralded uh, freshman season that you thought it could be a multiple year run. How intimidating is the big Hollywood machine as opposed to working in little old Atlanta, Georgia? It is intimidating. I I think it intends to be intimidating. <laughs> there are certainly there are, uh, you'll meet people who intend to be intimidating and intend to project power. But I think Hollywood itself just is because there's so much money involved. So many people have so much at stake on uh, on a project, uh, and then there's just the politics of it. And and I think something that you get with experience is you realize that a certain amount of that intimidation is kind of uh, a smokescreen or, or people messing with you. Right. And then you're just left with the fact that you need to do your job well and, and there's not a lot of time. And I think that's particularly on a, on a TV series where, you know, we're airing like the next week and there's another episode coming along right behind that or, or frequently working on, you know, the episodes overlap and we're working on two simultaneously. There's just a lot of time pressure and a lot of pressure to be able to do a good job very quickly. Oh, okay. Hey, well, can you give us any inside scoop on The Good Doctor? What's it like there? It's actually, I mean, it's an incredibly well-run show. It's, I know this sort of sounds very cheesy, <laughs> but it's almost like a little snapshot of the way that TV should be run. Like Everybody is nice. Everybody does a good job. They're respectful. There's very few late nights um it stays on schedule and you know and it's a great hit show you don't have to be like mean or crazy to make a great hit show you you can you can you know run something that actually people enjoy showing up and working on why is that the exception rather than the norm why is everyone so crazy about it i think because it's it, TV is hard, right? I mean, it's we do something that's difficult. We do something where there's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of pressure, particularly in network television, where 
they're looking at the ratings. And if your ratings flag this week, you might be out of a job next week. Um, right. And people have different skill sets. They have different attitudes. And usually you're dealing with personalities. Yeah. And a lot of the way that something runs is reflects the, the personalities of the people in charge. Craig, I would love to, to see what you think is the coolest piece of editing technology that Ooh. has come out in the last maybe 10 years. That, that's hard, too, because real editing hasn't changed. The basic thing is still making a cut. That, that's what we do like 99.9% .9 of the time. Yeah. <laughs> It hasn't. Okay, that, that, then that's an, that's a great answer. A lot of people listening to this podcast want to learn something. If there's something that we can tell uh, editors or young editors that are listening, what do you, what would you tell them? Really, from you know film and glue up to these big computer systems that we have now. That's still the basics of editing. Uh, there there are some like really really cool things coming out that have to do more with organization and with, with technical elements. Uh, they're doing like a lot of machine learning and, and AI stuff that'll clean up audio for you. Or uh, there's some things that are going to be coming out that are supposed to like scan through your footage and uh, automatically organize your footage, which could be very cool for like documentary and, and reality. A part of my issue is, is I'm working on a, a network TV drama, which is still uh, very, very basic. Right. And it's very, very much about, we're just telling the story. We're just, here's this piece of footage, and then there's a cut, and then here's this next piece of footage. Right. That's, so a lot of the newer stuff that's come out is, is more, it's great for you if, if you're in your, your office in your home. And you have to put together an entire show by yourself. Now you have great tools to do that that are about color correction, that are about uh, fixing your, your audio. And that's where a lot of the, the advances are coming in. When I was a, a kid, my, when I was a kid, my dad would, um, he worked for a radio station and he would put together a play-by-play for a Buffalo Bills recap show. Uh, it was all audio. But he used two reel-by-reels and a razor blade and tape. <laughs> so oh, yeah. that was my lesson in editing. I, mean, I would watch him every week and he would do this. Um, so the concept I get completely. Um, I just was wondering if there was anything that was really cool out there <laughs> there's a lot of things that are like supposed to be just around the corner with machine learning and artificial intelligence um and i'm actually i'm on a consumer advisory board for uh, adobe systems so they pitch a lot of these these things to us that are you know probably going to come out in the next version or two that are about being able to type in a line of dialogue and have your edit system find everywhere that the actors said that or um, or have a, a, a machine learning algorithm that scans through all your footage and that can find you like forest at night if you type that in. These are kind of uh, organizational things that, that they're working on. There are supposed to be algorithms that can edit things automatically and I, I think that scares editors a little bit. 
There are some of those. Um, there is an art and science to editing. So, you know, I, I still believe in the human touch. I think so, because if you, you know, if you go through the process of making a show and you, the moment you get like two people in a room, you've got like different opinions on what something should be and how it should be edited and, and what the goal of it should be. And I don't see how you can replace that with a machine. If, if like you have a different approach to me and you have a different perspective and somebody else has a different perspective again, I'm not sure how you can make an algorithm that is going to be like, better than what or, or predictive of what any one of us would want something to be. Sure. Um, okay, Craig, I, I want to, we've kept you on pretty long. I just one real quickly, tell me a little bit about second day. We all watched it and really interesting, oh, interesting yeah. piece. How hard was that to edit? I mean, how hard was that to direct? Do you think? Oh yeah. Keeping the wheel looking good. What's uh, what are you doing? Practice on for, for a din, din, day. You cannot practice for a day. Just be yourself. What movie are we watching? Cars 2. Wasn't that terrible? Yeah, we can watch something else. You got popcorn on me. Let me get that. Perfect. No, 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 wait. You know, actually, everybody was really great on that crew. They were all really motivated, and uh, everybody was was really excited to be there and really into it. It was a very well written script. Uh, you know, the the. The filming actually went fairly quickly. John Lawson did a great job directing it. It it wasn't it wasn't hard to edit from a technical perspective. It was challenging because it's you know one of these uh, film challenges where you have a weekend to uh, to shoot and edit the thing. So I was like up to three a.m. working on that. But I think a lot of it was. Uh, like where where Micah rolls the chair back and teleports, <laughs> yeah, those yeah. edits. the The timing on those edits was really critical to make that look, uh, to make that look right. Sure. And then your a lot of the performances were really good, but your the comedy is interesting because comedy is so subjective, and you're having to make timing is everything decisions about timing and about performance and about, you know, is something big funny or is something subtle funny? I yeah. loved that. Um, the kid was great. It was funny. And you know what the thing is, is when you watch something, I didn't know it was supposed to be funny at first. So I was watching it and um, learning that it was funny uh, after about <laughs> 45 seconds, maybe. But then I forgot about the disability aspect of it completely and just enjoyed it for being funny. So I love, it. I love it when something takes you from a place where you're just, you know, okay. passive and then you get confused and then you, and then I'm like, am I, am I supposed to laugh? Is this supposed to be funny? Right. Um, Cause you're not supposed to laugh at people with disabilities. Right. And, and then it successfully takes you over that, that, 
uncomfortable place into just enjoying it. So I definitely got there. Oh, great. It was great. Great. That was great. Yeah, it was pretty cool, man. Pretty okay. cool. Yeah. Hey, listen, is, is the good doctor, would you say that's your dream job or what, what, what do you want to do more than anything now that you've had this experience? He wants to be a gardener. <laughs> yeah, he wants to drive a tractor and just cut grass. Yeah, I know. Me too. It's, I mean, that's, it's an interesting question because, you know, my perspective has changed so much. I've got to see different things here. You know, I was with the reality company for two weeks. I've been on comedies. I've been on dramas. Uh, I was on a Nicolas Cage feature. Uh, so I've seen like a, a little bits of different different things and i'm not really sure what the you know what the next move is because i'm i'm sort of learning more and getting exposed to more things all the time and it's so it's it's sort of a it's a definitely a learning experience as i go along maybe elon musk will hire you maybe he's just uh he's just over the hill there i think yeah yeah craig craig lives up in the desert right yeah how do you like la itself is la a cool town been a long time since I lived there. LA is kind of a weird town because <laughs> it's not, you know, it's 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 not like a city like New York where there's, you know, a center to it, and and it's it's kind of like Atlanta in that it's spread out and there's different neighborhoods yeah. and you're driving a lot to get from one place to another another place. Um, oh yeah, it's sort of. It's a bit. It's a bit like Atlanta and being, you know, a, a driving to different neighborhoods, different parts of it, kind of a city. Um, Got it. But it does. It does have the beach, which everybody goes on about a lot. Oh yeah. All right, my friend. Well, listen. Thanks for taking the time out. I mean, I miss talking to you. I'm glad you guys are doing well out there. I am really, really proud of the work you're doing, man. I watched the show. It's really well done. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Craig. Congratulations, Craig. We're we're really proud for you. Well, thank you. Uh, all right. Well, uh, thank you, Craig Tallis, um, assistant editor on The Good Doctor, and I'm proud to say a friend of mine. It's been good talking to you. And for uh, Sarah and Teresa, we are all girls on film, and we are out. <laughs> <laughs>